It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Well, what do a Viennese journalist, a a successful Hollywood screenwriter, a Supreme Court justice, and uh, Lawrence of Arabia, a.k.a. T.E. Lawrence, have in common? Well, they all played a vital role in creating a free and democratic Jewish state, Israel. And it helps explain why America is closely tied with Israel and why the two have had have a bond that is not just religious, but philosophical and political. And which is why we should all be appalled at the pro-Palestinian protests on American soil. Now, to help put all of this in historical perspective is author and historian Rick Richman. He's a resident scholar at American Jewish University in Los Angeles, and he's also a graduate and graduated with honors from Harvard College and New York University Law School. Um, His new book ties all of these historical figures, uh, ones that I mentioned earlier, and more together. The book is called And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. And Rick joins me now. Welcome. Thank you, Lauren. Now, I've got to ask you first, because you graduated from two institutions of higher learning that have become hotbeds for pro-Palestinian protests. A lot of anti-Semitism going on in both schools. Your, just your reaction to that. Well, my main reaction, given the book I, I've written, is that there is this tremendous lack of knowledge of history. I mean, most people have live their entire lives with uh, with uh, Israel in existence, with Israel um, after the Six-Day War when, when, when they were uh, attacked, uh, acquiring the West Bank or Judea and Samaria. Um, and they've seen, uh, they've lived with this. They don't know the 75-year history of Israel. They don't know the history before 1948, much less the history between 1948 and 1967. And so they don't have the context. And part of this is the fault of some of our elite universities to teach history so that they have this knowledge. And instead, they're reacting to current events without the context in which to put them. And that's a huge educational and moral failing, in my opinion, of our most elite educational institutions. And one of the ways out of the morass we seem to be in is to recall Jewish history, American history, what the ideals are that America as a country, Israel as a country are trying to achieve. And if we can provide that, then I think students and the general public will have the knowledge that they need in order to react in a way that is not simply an emotional reaction to a current event, but an intellectual, moral, and educational understanding of the history that that forms it. You know, it's not just the students, it's staff as well. I mean, this is what they're being taught in schools. And not only that, there are a lot of uh, Muslim-majority countries that have uh, 
paid a lot of money into American schools for the purpose of establishing chairs and professorships that promote the Palestinian cause. Is that not true? It is true. And it is it is true that beginning with the 60s, when the 1960s, when radicalism started to take over some of the universities, the graduates of that period became teachers and, and then uh, their children became teachers and they brought that mindset to the university. And then there's been huge funding from Middle East sources of Middle East programs in the universities that are providing a one-sided view of the Middle East and the history of the Middle East um, so that that it, it's not it's not surprising that you're producing these kinds of students when you've got these kinds of of teachers and as i was researching my book i would come home uh and tell my wife here's what i found out today and how come i didn't know this i had a very good secular education a very good jewish education mm -hmm. and i didn't know these things and I, I i asked myself why and part of the answer was my teachers didn't know it either and so they couldn't teach it and their teachers in turn had not passed on to them and somehow we lost the thread of both jewish history and to a certain extent american history um and so we have lost the context in which we can understand the past, which helps us understand the present, which in turn for, uh, it informs and creates the future. So history is not just a story in the past. It's something that's present right now and that will formulate what our future will be. So it's very, very important to understand what happened that led us to where we are today. You know, one of the things that really surprised me in your book, you talk about how um, the modern day Jewish history actually begins in 1895. And I, that kind of really floored me because I didn't understand that. I was more thinking, you know, 1940, 19, even, the, you know, the 1930s, but not 1895. What, what happened in 1895? Well, in 1895, um, Theodore Herzl, who was a 35-year-old journalist in Vienna, uh, was reacting to the rampant anti-Semitism that was then emerging starting in the 1880s that was a different kind of anti-Semitism from the anti-Semitism in the past. In the past, it had sometimes been religious anti-Semitism for the failure of the Jews to uh, accept Jesus as their savior. Sometimes it had been a social anti-Semitism because Jews were a people apart. Uh, there were various causes for anti-Semitism, the common denominator of which was that one, if we're, one were a Jew, could give up Judaism, endorse Christianity, or at least endorse a secular society, and therefore cure yourself of, uh, of the anti-Semitism directed at you. Beginning in the 1880s, it was a different, new and different kind of anti-Semitism. It was an anti-Semitism of blood. If you had a Jewish grandparent, one Jewish grandparent, and therefore had any Jewish blood, you were uh, treated as a problem for society. And it wasn't a problem that you could ameliorate by endorsing another religion or endorsing no religion or joining secular society. Uh, you couldn't because it was racial in nature. And part of this was the Darwinian revolution, the survival oh. of the fittest. 
And the Germans got the idea that there was a master race and you had to pure, purify society, purify the blood in order to have a, a, a country that would survive. And this type of anti-Semitism was one that no amount of assimilation could ameliorate. So Theodore Herzl, who in 1895 was a very successful Viennese columnist, mm -hmm. got this idea for a Jewish state. And the, today we look back on what he did and we think, well, that, that that's a pretty simple idea, pretty yeah. obvious idea. Uh, of course, you need a Jewish state if you if you if you want to survive as a people. But at that time, it was tremendously controversial across the Jewish spectrum. The Orthodox rabbis opposed him because they thought you should await the, the Messiah. But you shouldn't try to rush the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then the um, socialist Jews on the other end of the spectrum uh, thought any kind of nationalism was reactionary or counter-revolutionary. They believed in a class struggle that that went beyond national lines. They thought the last thing you needed was a Jewish state. You needed international organizations. And then you had reformed Jews, and they thought that Judaism should strive to be a modern religion and reject the rituals of the past. And the last thing they wanted to do was go back in history to a Jewish state. Mm -hmm. And then you had the, the Jewish public, and they were residing in pretty good circumstances before 1880 in many countries. And they felt Zionism would um, would occasion uh, accusations of dual loyalty, and they did not want to have any questions raised about their value as citizens. And finally, public figures, Jewish public figures, Jewish intellectuals, they thought Zionism might be a good idea. Some some of them thought it was a bad idea. Some of them thought it was a good idea. All of them thought it was absurd to think <laughs> that, you, that you, this small little people, could form a state in the land from which they came 2,000 years before, that at that time had been ruled, was being ruled by the Ottoman Empire, not any Arabs, by the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled it for 400 years. So the whole idea of a Jewish state was one that, although it seems obvious to us now, was rejected across the, the, the board of the Jewish religious and political and public spectrum. So, so what changed? Idea... So what changed um, to bring it to where you know we have now? I mean, obviously it's in increments, but what then, what the happened after that? 1895, you know, mid-1890s, then what happened? 1895, uh, Herzl writes his, his historic pamphlet called The Jewish State. And he says in the first sentence of, his, of, of the pamphlet, not an original idea. The Jews have been trying to go back to Jerusalem and Eretz Israel forever. Uh, my idea is to show you how to do it. And his pamphlet showed in detail how to do it. And then he called the first Zionist Congress in 1897. And to his amazement, people showed up from all over the world. It's incredible that a year and a half after he writes a pamphlet, in Basel, Switzerland, they're having the first Zionist Congress. People are coming from all over the world. Five prominent American Jews were there. And one of them, whose story I tell in the book, is Rosa Sonnenshine. She's, mm. uh, she, she comes from St. Louis. Do you realize what it takes to go to, to, to uh, Basel, Switzerland in 1897? <laughs> from St. Louis, you gotta go to Chicago. 
There's no planes. You got to go to Chicago. You got to get to New York. You got to get on a boat. You got to cross the ocean. You got to get to Europe. You got to get to Switzerland. You got to get down to to Basel, which is not a convenient city. Right, right. For a three day conference. And she went there. And people like that showed that kind of commitment. And they came away energized and excited. And they just took it forward. And there was a Zionist conference every year. And Herzl, as I said, was 35. He spent nine years devoting himself to his idea. He died at age 44. He never got to see the success that he eventually um, would have seen was the result of what he did with a pamphlet and a Congress and going on from there. Who picked it up after that? Who picked it up after that? I mean, you've got eight people that you've highlighted, but there obviously are many more than eight. But these eight are particularly... You know, they represent a cornerstone, a turning point in a lot of these and a lot of this this fight for a, a state of Israel. And, and well, the, the second character in the book after after Herzl is Louis Brandeis across the ocean in America. Mm-hmm. Louis Brandeis, whom all of us remember as one of the great Supreme Court justices right. of the United States. Brandeis University. Serves, and, and, and has a name, university named after him today. And he was on the court for 23 years, and he wrote some of the great First Amendment and Fourth Amendment opinions of the Supreme Court. They're studied today. If you go to law school in your first year, you'll read them. Um, he, He was that kind of intellect and impact. He went to Harvard Law School at age 18. He skipped college, graduated Harvard Law School in two years with the highest grades in the history of the school. He became famous as the people's attorney. He invented the idea of pro bono legal service, and he had no Jewish connection. His parents had emigrated in 1848 after the failed revolutions in Europe. They went to Kentucky. He grew up in Louisville. They were trying to avoid Jewish history, not remember it. They gave their son, Louis, no Jewish education. They were part of no synagogue. They contributed to no Jewish causes. He was brilliant, but he had no connection with Jewish causes. And by happenstance, he he meets in 1912 or 1914 Jacob de Haas, who was one of Herzl's lieutenants who had moved moved to the United States, and he went to interview Brandeis on a question of insurance law that was of interest to Brandeis, and he says, he starts talking about Herzl and Zionism, and Brandeis gets interested, and he spends the summer reading all of the texts of Zionism at that point in time, and they, uh, one has to go back and read those books and pamphlets and speeches to appreciate the moral force, the literary quality, the intellectual um, sheer s- style of these of these writings. And you can see wow. how someone like Brandeis would get excited and rediscover or discover yeah. his Jewish roots. And he, given the name he had, took American Zionism, of which there were 15,000 members of the, of, of the Zionist society out of several million Jews in America at the time, and he transformed it into a movement that, because of his name and his time and his effort that he then devoted to it, into a major force. And so now you've got Herzl, who took the baton up until he died in 1904, and now you've got Brandeis, who's carrying it forward from 1914 on, and 
it just goes on and on and on. And it's across it's across the con the, the ocean because the third chapter is Heim Weitzman. Heim Weitzman becomes the first president of the Zionist organization um, to negotiate with the British over the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And and Weitzman, he's a kid who grew up in a shtetl of 8,000 people in Russia for his first 11 years and then gets sent by his parents to a German school alone to get him an education. It took uh, it took all day to travel the 25 miles between the shtetl and the German city. And there he is alone and he imbibes Zionism and he takes it forward. And so... The, the the book is a, is a story of individuals, and what I was trying to do. Maybe we'll talk about Golda Meir in a second because she's really yeah, remarkable. Yeah. But 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 what it tries to do is to show Zionism not from thirty thousand feet with stories of religion and history and military and diplomatic things. Take it all the way down to the bottom and show what individuals can and did do. And we remember these individuals as historic figures, um, uh, but they were just people really like us. They yeah, were only yeah. individuals who were just found an idea and committed themselves to it and changed history. Wow. Golda made, go, go, let me well, just let's, mention. Well, let's, 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 well, I want to take a break now on a Lighthouse Faith podcast. We'll be right back because I want to get to Golda Meir because it's fascinating stuff about her. We'll be right back with uh, Rick Richmond. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And we're back um, with Rick Richmond, who is the author of this very fascinating book called And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. And it's really highlighting and focusing on eight people who really were the the cornerstones or the turning point in the formulation of the democratic um, Jewish state of Israel. And like you were saying, Rick, before we took a break, it really is getting down to people and, and the groundwork and the trenches of what it took of the commitment of these people and their passion 
um, to create this. Um, I want to talk about Golda Meir, but I want to talk about the Balfour Declaration because you talked about that in 1917. The Balfour Declaration is the British commitment to a Jewish national home in Palestine. What happened to bring that about? Well, 1917, the beginning of 1917, um, World War I is still raging, and it's not clear who's going to win that war, whether it's going to be Britain and its allies or Germany and its allies. And both Germany and Britain were thinking of issuing a statement of support for a Jewish national home in Palestine if they, if their respective sides won the war. They were trying to attract Jewish public opinion. Britain knew that there was major Jewish population in the United States and in Russia. There had just been the Bolshevik Revolution and Russia, which was an ally uh, of Britain, was threatening to remove itself from the war. So they thought, uh, Britain thought, that a, a statement, a declaration in support of Jewish national hopes, Zionism, would help them win the war, help Britain win the war. And on the other side, Germany, which was where the world headquarters of the Zionist movement was before the World War I started in 1914, mm. and was that sort of the home of Zionism, and was one of the, you know, the, the more most cultured countries in the world, they themselves were thinking of a statement similar to what became the Balfour Declaration. Wow. So it was a race to affect public opinion at a time when the outcome of the war was unclear. So eventually, Britain, through its foreign minister, Arthur Balfour, issues its one-page declaration saying they view with favor the facilitation of a Jewish national home in Palestine, Eretz Yisrael, if, if they win the war. And they just, one of the reasons they issued it is they thought Germany's going to issue it fairly quickly. We have to get it out now. Now, people criticize today the Balfour Declaration as just a, a statement by right, Britain right. during the war. But five years later, the League of Nations, after the war was over, adopted the Balfour Declaration, and it became an international commitment to establish a Jewish national home in the place where the Jews had had their home for 2,000 years before and had never given it up, never given up their claim to it because they had been forcefully expelled by the Romans. They had never get, they had never given up their claim to their homeland. So the more important, more impo the Balfour Declaration is an important moment in 1917. Even more important is in 1922, the League of Nations mm. adopts it as in, effectively international law. And then you go forward uh, two decades to 1947, when the UN, by a two-thirds vote, endorses a Jewish state in Palestine and also an Arab state. It was, it was a two-state solution that the Jews accepted and the Arabs rejected. And seventy-five. So this this past this this past year, Israel has celebrated its seventy-fifth anniversary. Yeah. The Palestinian Arabs could have celebrated the seventy-fifth anniversary of their own state if they hadn't rejected it in nineteen forty-seven when the Jews accepted it. And it's a great tragedy for, in my opinion, for for the Arab people that they didn't do that because look what the history has been yeah. in the last seventy-five years for the Arabs. It has been. Um, a, a disaster and 
in a certain sense, a self-imposed or self-created disaster. You said something. The opportunity. You said something very fascinating that I had not heard before, but it absolutely makes sense that the Jewish population never voluntarily left their land. They were kicked out. The, the Romans invaded. So it means that the political powers that be in nineteen, you know, twenty-two um, had to recognize that long historical um, bent of that land. They had to go back and say they were kicked out of their land. They didn't voluntarily leave. And so they had to acknowledge that. And I had never really understood that part of it before, that it's not just a religious claim to the land, but it's but it's political as well because they were kicked out. And historical as well. Yeah, historical. It's, it's historical as well. And, and Winston Churchill in 1922, he was not prime minister, he was just a member of the government, but he wrote a white paper on Middle East policy. And he said that it is important for the world to recognize that the Jews are in Palestine as of right and not as of sufferance. In other words, they weren't being allowed there or imposed there. They had a right to be there that was a historic right. And Ben-Gurion would often say the, the Hebrew Bible is a historical record uh, that goes back thousands of years. And so it wasn't just the Balfour Declaration. It wasn't even just the League of Nations mandate for Palestine or even the UN resolution in 1947. It was a historical claim and a moral right that went back to millennia. And um, so the story is it, 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 the, the story is one which as Ben-Gurion said, the Balfour Declaration and the League of Nations mandate and the UN resolution didn't create a right to a state. It recognized a right, a pre-existing right to a state that history, um, morality, um, and the efforts of so many people uh, created. Fascinating. Well, let's get to Golda Meir. And there's a recent uh, movie, or it's a Netflix series, I'm not quite sure. Um, that's out now about Golda Meir. Um, and, but what I didn't know about her until I read um, part of your book was that she was actually um, grew up in Wisconsin, which is so odd because you think of her as this great Israeli leader. And she grew up in Wisconsin. I'm from Minnesota. So Wisconsin is like, what? She was a cheesehead? Well, you, you know, even odder than that, she was born in Kiev in Ukraine. Wow. She lived her first eight years and her father left uh, and left her mother and their three three daughters, including Golda, back in Kiev. He went to America. He went to Wisconsin. He got a job as a carpenter. And three years later, he sent for his wife and his three daughters. Mm. And they had to get to the border. They had to pay bribes. You couldn't get out of the country very easily. So imagine that mother and three daughters in that time, you know, no planes, nothing, um, getting out and getting to the United States and getting to Wisconsin. And Golda is eight years old. And she later recalled in her autobiography that she, she took only three things from Russia, fear, hunger and fear. And wow. she comes to, to Wisconsin and Wisconsin is the is the home of socialism at the time when socialism itself was relatively new and vibrant in mm -hmm. america and she sees her father marching in a parade in milwaukee and their police on horseback on either side of the marchers and she's amazed 
because they're not attacking the marchers as they did in <laughs> Russia. They're supporting them. They're wow. allowing them to march. And there she is in America. She's experiencing after the worst anti-Semitic autocracy of the time back in Russia. Now she's 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 experiencing freedom and security and relative prosperity in America. But she reads up on Zionism and she gets excited by it. And she gets married at age 19 after making her husband promise that after the war ends, they would move to Palestine. And they did. She's age 23. Mm. She gets there and she becomes a huge asset to the Zionist movement because she speaks perfect English. Ah. So she can come back to America. She speaks unaccented English. She's a beautiful, in my opinion, young woman. And she's just a force of nature. And the, the funny thing about about Golda Meir is that Ben Gurion later, we're talking about 30 years later, yeah. when she's a foreign minister, she says, Golda Meir is the best man in my cabinet. And, Gold, <laughs> and Golda Meir always thought that that was funny, that the, the greatest compliment Ben Gurion could think of was that she was the greatest man. She was she was an amazing individual. But like the other people in the book, she didn't start out that way. She started out as somebody with no institutional no economic backing, no, nothing. But she got enamored by an idea and she committed her life to it and helped create history as a result. She 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 was prime minister of Israel uh, from 67 to 74. And during that time, uh, what were her greatest challenges during that time? Well, she took over right after the Six-Day War in 1967. So she had to deal with... Um, with the Arabs who, after that war, uh, met in Khartoum and adopted their famous three no's, no negotiation, no recognition, no peace with Israel. So she was faced with an absolute wall of rejection by the surrounding Arab states. And then in 1973, she was the prime minister when Egypt um, and Syria attacked in the Yom Kippur War, which almost destroyed Israel. And she, because of a, in part, a personal relationship she had with both Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, who admired and respected her, they had the relationship in which they could talk to each other candidly. And the United States supported Israel and sent the after the disastrous few days when it looked like Israel was was about to be destroyed, Moshe Dayan um, went almost literally crazy under the pressure. But Golda Meir held her nerve, negotiated with Kissinger and Nixon, and eventually brought the 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 country through. She's still very popular in America and very unpopular in Israel because they blame her for the surprise attack. Mm. Um, 50 years later, we're going through a similar sort of surprise attack uh, one day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Um, But it shows you how individuals can affect history and who is in what position at what time um, is important. And so I, it's the theme I constantly try to make when I talk about my book, that it's not about these great themes uh, uh, of isms. It's about the people who yeah. adopted them and devoted their lives to them. Are those three points from the Arabs, uh, no negotiations, no 
What are the other two? Are there, is that still in play today? Well, no, it's it, it's not because eventually Egypt made peace um, when Menachem Begin was the prime minister, and Israel gave back the Sinai to Egypt in exchange for peace. The Sinai Desert, which they had conquered as a result of the war, was three times the size of Israel, and there were valuable oil fields in the Sinai, and Israel gave it back for peace with Egypt, which has, thank God, sustained itself until this time. And Jordan, in 1994, uh, entered into a peace agreement with Israel. And then, as you know, uh, in 2020, um, uh, 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 five, five Arab or Muslim countries uh, entered into the Abraham Accords with Israel. And before this current war, uh, there were hopes that Saudi Arabia was was poised to join. And uh, some people think, and there probably is a lot to it, that part of the attack on Israel by Hamas, sponsored by Iran, was an attempt to delay or, or destroy any emerging um, uh, uh, ally, alliance between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So, no, the, the three no's, there are another lost opportunity that the Arabs had in 1967 to negotiate for a, a Palestinian state um, in exchange for peace. Um, there have been a total, by my count, six times when formally Pal a Palestinian state has been offered to the Palestinian Arabs and they have rejected it because essentially what they were interested in was not a second state. They were interested in eliminating the one state that was there already. And that's been a tragedy. For, for both sides, the number of people killed on both sides, all of them could have been avoided. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you see any way that this can end peacefully? Um, or do you see any way that Hamas, I'm, I'm not talking about the Palestinian people, but Hamas in particular, would allow Israel to exist? I mean, what's going, what's the end game here? No, see, that, that that's an excellent question, because now we go all the way back to the beginning of the story in 1895. Hamas has got a is fighting a religious war against Israel, mm. and they're not. They don't want a two state solution. They're not talking about the borders. They're not talking about a Palestinian state in part of Palestine. They're saying that Islam, their version of it, is religiously required, and that Iran takes the same position to destroy Israel. Well, that's a that's a form of anti-Semitism that you know can't be met by a negotiation or an offer of land. It's it's existential, and so that's why Israel has said this is a fight that's got to be taken until Hamas does not rule Gaza and cannot militarily um, threaten Israel again. And if Israel achieves that, what they will have achieved is something that will be good, in my opinion, for the Palestinian uh, Arabs in Gaza and the West Bank, as well as for Israel, because it will eliminate um, a, a, a problem that has no solution as long as Hamas is taking that form of anti-Semitic approach. Um, and, and, and therefore, it's, this is not just an Israeli fight. It's a fight beyond that for um, uh, uh, for, for, for peace in, in the region itself. And yes, I do see a, a, a piece of, of light at the end of the tunnel, because so far, at least, the Israeli military um, action has been surprisingly effective, uh, particularly when they're fighting uh, an enemy that surrounds itself with civilian um, 
uh, shields uh, and, make, and do doesn't wear uniforms and makes it uh, extremely difficult to wage any kind of military response. Yeah. And Israel has done so. And I think they have, in fact, admirably uh, observed the international rules of law in doing it. I've, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and I, this is probably not your area of expertise, is, you know, you know, war strategy, but I keep hearing the at the Palestinian, pro-Palestinian protests, you know, they, they're calling for a ceasefire. It's always about a ceasefire. Israel has to stop. Why don't they call for Hamas to surrender? Because it would achieve the same thing. Yeah, it, it, it would achieve the same thing. If you release the hostages, um, that would have an important effect. And no, people, people, at least on that element of the political spectrum, are not calling for that. They're, the, 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 a ceasefire, in effect, is a, is a call for Israel to allow Hamas to continue to exist because they realize once there's a ceasefire, you 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 can say it's for X number of days, but you can't start up again. Yeah, you, you, you know, and so therefore, it is um, it's a trap. It's, it, it sounds good, uh, a humanitarian pause. It sounds good, but it is in effect saying um, you know after. Pearl Harbor's attacked, or after the World Trade Center's attacked, we didn't talk about humanitarian pauses or uh, ceasefires. We realized we were in a war that we had to win, and Israel's in the same position today. So, uh, that you're asking a great question. Why, why don't they say to Hamas, um, "You did a you, you did a horrible thing, and now you're you're you're, you're paying a horrible price and innocent." Uh, Gazan civilians are paying that price while you're underground protecting yourself. Stop it. Release the hostages. Um, yeah. A very good question. Well, I I think somebody should start that mantra now. Hamas surrender. <laughs> yes. Release the hostages. Yeah. Um, Rick um, Richmond, thank you so much. I want to mention the book again. It's called And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. You have another book on your website, as, as I understand as well. Uh, what is that? book uh, uh, was written five years ago called... Um, racing Against History, the 1940 Campaign for a Jewish Army to Join the Fight Against Hitler. And it's a little-known story of how, um, uh, as one historian says, the Jews in 1940 were powerless, but they were not passive. They tried to establish an army. And the three great uh, Zionist figures at the time, David Ben-Gurion, Chaim Weizmann, Vladimir Jabotinsky, came to America to try and drum up support for a Jewish army. And this is 1940, um, before America even joins the war. And it was at a time when uh, the last hope for Western civilization was Britain, and they needed every kind of military support they could get. So it was not a symbolic effort. It was not a quixotic effort. It was an effort to join the fight against Hitler a year before America was forced into that fight by the attack on it at Pearl Harbor. It's a fascinating story. If I, 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 I'm not counting the book, I'm counting the story. Yeah, It's an incredible yeah. story. It's an incredible story that we all ought to know. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Rick, for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. This has been really fascinating. And I'm going to tell people, I did mention a screenwriter in the introduction, but you're going to have to get his book in order to find out who the screenwriter was. 
I'm just gonna I'm I'm just gonna give you that tease right now. So I'm not even gonna tell you you're gonna have to get the book. Um, but I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank thank you, Lauren. It's been an honor. Listen ad free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad free on the Amazon Music app, or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. And uh, thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.